Pete Giuliano. It is, let's see, what is, what, what, what's the day? It is May 7th, Saturday, May 7th, 2022. Pete, what number is this? Well, first off, it's seven days in May. That's right. That's it's seven <laughs> days in May. I watched that movie as a kid. It had a big influence on me. Yes, it it's did. reminiscent of four days in May. Yes, yes, absolutely. Well, this is two three seven two thirty seven. So crank it in, Robert, and crank it in, Ralph. Crank it in, Robert, and crank it in, Ralph. I'm going to turn my audio down here a little bit. I hope I can still hear you. I can still hear you, Pete. Can I hear you? Yeah. Okay. Good. Okay. That's good. Nice and nice and quiet here in the morning. It's a rainy morning. Rainy morning in the. Uh, in the Washington, D.C. area. All right, let's start out. We got some travelogue this morning. I was up in New York City. New York City. My, yes. home t- my hometown was up there. Um, and it was. we went up there because uh, our niece, Brianna, was getting married, so we went up there for the wedding. Our she kids just came- went into college. No, no, she's, she's halfway through medical school, Pete. <laughs> uh, she's doing very well, and she married a, a guy who, who she met in medical school, and he's just beginning a neurosurgery residency. He's doing quite well. Um, and it was great. It was great to see the family. Our kids, came, Maria came up with us, and Billy came down from, uh, from actually came in from, from the West Coast, where he's out there uh, doing some, some job searching. And we got all together in New York City, and we spent up there three or four days. It was great. We went to the wedding, walked around, and Pete, I brought with me some stickers, some of those stickers, you know? Uh, Now, you know, those stickers have appeared in four or five, maybe six locations in New York City on some some pretty kind of um, nice, nice territory on Fifth Avenue, Park Avenue, yeah, down in Greenwich Village, of course, on the advice of my attorneys, our attorneys at Dewey, Cheatham, and Howell, I will deny all involvement in the placement of said stickers. However, I'll point out something. Um, Dex, ZL2DEX, saw a picture of one of the stickers placed uh, on uh, at, at the corner of 64th Street and 5th Avenue on the Upper East Side in New York. And he made a comment kind of harsh comment about new york city he said oh well from the uh from the graffiti around it i can i can only guess that it's new york city oh man okay look when i placed well when whoever placed the stickers where they were placed he or she only selected boxes or places where there was already a lot of stickers and graffiti. In other words, I didn't want, or the alleged sticker placer did not want to disturb any of the remaining areas of New York City that were free from this kind of graffiti or sticker stuff. So don't don't worry, we didn't we didn't add to the contamination, but it was a good time. Billy and I went to the zoo. We went along uh, Central Park Zoo, which was a lot of fun. Great, a lot of what a, what a great connect collection of animals they have there, and then. Um, Walked along the uh, the High Line, which is on the west side of New York. Elisa loves the High Line. It's native plants. We went down to Greenwich Village. We went to Washington Square Park, which is quite different. It's a bit of a trip, um, and it's a, it's a kind of a real New York experience. So we, we had a lot of fun. But, Pete, we've got to talk about that trip to Los Angeles. Well, hold on a second. Yeah. When, when I first saw, I think it's an emergency call box. 
Yeah. Where that sticker was on, emergency call. Yeah. And I says, those damn hookers in New York took my saying. They're advertising their business. <laughs> when you know stuff, you can do stuff. <laughs> <laughs> when people look at that, they probably think, well, what's that all about? You know? Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm surprised. that You know, the, the, the URL for the website, for the blog, is on there. This yeah, is all. Yeah, this is all the work yeah, of uh, uh, of Jesse, who we're gonna we're gonna talk about. Jesse N five J H H was yeah. the one who came up with the stickers. But let me just say something about the stickers because we have distributed quantities of the stickers to strategically placed people around the world. When I say around the world, I mean mostly in the United States and the UK. Um, that's about as far around as we got. We're willing to spread them further. Maybe I sent them to Australia. I'm not sure. But listen, the, the secret, a lot of these stickers have not been placed. They've not been stuck. Because, and I figured it out, it's hard to get the backing off the sticker, right? You have to really struggle with it. So I decided before we went up to New York City that I was going to get about 10 of these stickers ready to rock and roll. So I sat here in the shack the morning before we left with a little exacto knife and I peeled back one little corner, corner one little mm-hmm. corner of the sticker. And then the 10 stickers that had been prepped were in my wallet. So when it was time to engage in the alleged defacement of New York City, I wasn't standing there foostering around with the sticker while the New York Police Department approached to place me in handcuffs. Uh, I was able to just reach in the wallet, boom, take it out, boom. And believe me, in the uh, in the grand scheme of things, this is a relatively minor infraction in New York City. <laughs> there are far more serious things going on up there, even on the Upper East Side. But anyway, we had a lot of fun with that. But Pete, now we got to talk. We got to talk about the trip into Los Angeles to meet with the suits that you and I made to talk about the TV show. Quite something that, you know, I people should have anticipated this, Pete. They should have anticipated this because it fits so nicely in with the unforgettable, unbelievable, incredible incident in which I, as the author of Solder Smoke, Wireless Electronics in the Global Community, I, mean, I don't even remember the name of the book, you know, Global Adventures in Wireless Electronics, Solder Smoke. Remember when we were invited onto the Oprah Book Club? That was quite something. Sitting there with Oprah, it was it was great. I remember we we made the announcement, and a lot of guys, a lot of guys, said to their wives, "Honey, Bill Mara is going to be on the Oprah Book Club with his new book, Solder Smoke: Global Adventures in Wireless Electronics." Keep your eyes open and let me know when this appearance is going to take place. At which point, a lot of the wives looked at these guys and said. Are you nuts? <laughs> Oprah's not going to have Bill Mara on there to talk about that. But anyway, that was sort of in the same spirit of the, the TV show that we were talking about. We were, you and I were going to be on TV. It was going to be like a, like, a, you know, like a car show. like Reality. A reality TV show. And we were going to argue. You were going to talk about the virtues of digital VFOs. And I was going to talk about analog video. And we were going to have fights and stuff like that. Oh, it would have been great. You know, this was also tied in, Pete, something else. With, um, you know, something else that happened supposedly, during our trip into 
Los Angeles, La La Land, to visit the suits. And that is, we were approached by the people from Techie Tats. Tattoos for the technically inclined. And we, we talked about what we might get. I think you you wanted to go with a Colpitts oscillator or with, what was her name? Hedy Lamar. Hedy Lamar. Would it, would it would have been okay. Yeah. I, I, I myself was going to go with a, a Colpitts oscillator or... If I was feeling in the mood, maybe get the entire schematic of the Bit X twenty <laughs> <laughs> with analog VFO, by the way, LC VFO on my back. The original, the original, the one that was wound with the the nylon washers and the syringes and the whole the whole nine yards. That would have been really spectacular. You know, Pete, I I mentioned this to to my daughter Maria. I told her about techie tats and she she looked at me and she said oh my god some of those guys who listen to your podcaster might might just run out and you know get a tattoo you know in anticipation of what you and pete are supposedly going to do and i just thought about it for a second i looked her in the eye and i said maria that's just a risk we're willing to take Anyway, um, you know, uh, there was another story that came across that was very similar to this. Similar dateline, Pete. You know, what was the date for this story? This whole thing. Yeah, it was April 1st, you know, on, on April 1st. And, you know, there was a, an, an article, a similar article that appeared in, in the New Zealand Amateur Radio Journal. I thought this was pretty good. And they announced also on April 1st, that the, the communication authorities in New Zealand had decided to change the call signs of all New Zealand radio amateurs. No more ZLs. We had all come to know and love. I remember my first real DX was ZL2ACP. No, no. Going to change them all to AT. Can you imagine the number of QSL cards that had to be reproduced? Scrapped. It produced outrage. People wrote in angry. You know, it was almost almost like that time that we announced that the New Jersey state legislature had banned the use of soldering irons in the home. I mean, guys, guys wrote to the governor. Guys, guys wrote to the legislature. Angry letters. It was people, people were super worked up about it. Again, that was an April one article, like the the other one, like it was April April one. You know, and in New Zealand, it was April one. All these things, for some reason, they all come out on the first of April. Really interesting, you know, and. Uh, I'd just like to say, usually with these articles, you, what, you, what, you, what the author is trying to do is to confirm recep, reception, just like radio amateurs. We want to confirm that the message has been received, understood, and above all, accepted. You know, and I, I, one of the things we, that we announced uh, on, on our April 1st story about the impending release of the TV show, uh, solder smoke what, what was the name of the show solder smoke shack or solder, solder smoke workshop it was going to be on on tv on like hgtv right next to you know Green, you know orange county choppers or the the property brothers or something like that um we we told people that if they wanted to to be to get an alert on when the show was going to be out they wouldn't have to ask their wives to keep an eye out for it they could just send an email to us at soldersmoke.yahoo.com and we would put them on the list for people who are going to be, you know, getting a notification. 
Pete, we got a lot of emails. Yeah. You know. Yeah, you did. I forwarded them all to you so you could you could see how how deep the interest was in this program. And, and some of those people I know. <laughs> <laughs> some of them I know too. So none of them should feel bad. You know, it's it's April first. It's a it's a part of a ham radio tradition. The other thing, and this is something else that happens with almost all the April first stories, even the most fantastic stuff that we come up with, sometimes proves to be true. Now, unfortunately, I don't think we're going to have a TV show. However, Techie Tats is a thing. It is a thing. And somebody sent me the website. I, I think it was our friend down in Melbourne who sent us the, uh, the uh, uh, Peter, Peter down there in, in Melbourne sent us the, the link to Techie Tats, which I will put up on this show. You guys can take a look. So it, the no, no TV show. Pete and I didn't go into LA and everything else. No, no, no. Um, but Techie Tats, I, I, I'm, I, I, don't, I really don't think I'm going to get the Bidex tattooed, Pete. Are you going to get Hayley Lamar? No, no. But that one tattoo, that guy had a whole circuit board. I mean... It was all digi <laughs> stuff, too. There was there was no analog circuitry. There wasn't a yeah, single inductor yeah, yeah. or capacitor anywhere in there. It was all chips. And we'll talk about that in a bit. Anyway, we got we to gotta stop. We have to do a little bit of early um, early announcement here. We, we, uh, we still have a sponsor, Pete. This is great. Parts Candy. Uh... Carlos at Parts Candy produces test leads, these alligator test leads. And this all started with us a while back. I started looking for some test leads because I was getting super tired of these cheapo test leads where somebody had just crimped a bit of insulated wire onto an alligator clip. And I would be using it to test to see if the circuit was working, to see if a, a stage was getting juice or not. And I'd put the thing in there and I'd say, wow, it's not getting power. And then I'd look and I'd realize... Well, it's the, the reason it's not getting power through the test lead is because the crimping that they used, the cheapo crimping, didn't work. Carlos hand solders all of the clips to all of the high-quality leads using high-quality insulated wire. You could get them at a variety of different lengths. He comes, they come in a variety of different colors, so you don't get mixed up when, you, when you're using them. And he's got a variety of other kinds of, of test leads that you could clip on there, too. Mostly alligator clips, but a, a number of others that, that are useful in use with oscilloscopes and others. It, I, I really have found them useful. I, when I got these test leads from Carlos, who's in Chicago, by the way, I immediately threw out all the old junky test leads that I had before. And only now use the six or seven test leads that, that Carlos sent me. I mean, I'm, I'm usually never using more than two or three at the same time. But I, I use them all the time, and it's, it's really helpful. And I, I, I like them a lot. So if you're going to buy test leads, buy them from Carlos at Parts Candy. And it's, it, the, the link is on the Solder Smoke blog on the left-hand column. There's a picture. You'll see the test leads. It's very colorful. It's a nice, nice ad. You, Just, you, sent me, you sent me some when you bought the first yeah, group. And yeah. you were, you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. High quality. And you look at it and I said, finally, someone decoded it. That's <laughs> it. Somebody figured it out. Somebody yes. figured it out. This is an yes. important, this is a, a really, it, it doesn't seem like it, but this is an important workbench item. If you don't have these things on your workbench, you know, you're really not going to be able to, to work properly and do the kind of things that we're talking about. It's a simple thing, but if you buy cheap ones, it, it, it can lead 
to a lot of heartache. If you buy good ones, it'll help you with your troubleshooting and everything else. So, so go ahead, just just click on the picture on the Solder Smoke blog, or do a search for Parts Candy on eBay. It'll take you to uh, to Carlos's site. Carlos is is in Chicago. He's a small business operator. He's one of us. He's an electronic tinkerer. So check it out, Parts Candy. Uh, it's 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 well, available well, it? on eBay. Yes, get it. Get it. Pete, let's talk about benches. Should I go yes. first? I think it's my turn sure. to go first. Sure. I mean, I got a lot of stuff to talk about. I've been I've been doing a lot of a lot of radio stuff here, you know, and some of it is actual building, and some of it is sort of just the detective work, radio detective work. Um, I want to first talk about television because there was a, a story on on the um, Hackaday blog a while back about early TV, and it really caught my attention. And I looked at this thing, and it was talking about TV in the 1930s. And it reminded me of a program that Gene Shepard did about his first exposure to television. Shepard, it's one of the best ham radio episodes that Shepard put out. God, you know, Shepard was on TV almost like four hours a night, just ad-libbing, just no, no script, just sitting in front of the microphone at WOR telling stories from from his youth, from his days in the Army Signal Corps, from being in New York City, the radio business, books, the whole bit. But he would often talk about ham radio. And actually, that's how I got interested in the hobby, um, by listening to Shepard. And there was one episode. It turns out it was in January 1973. I was uh, probably a freshman or a sophomore in high school at the time. And my father and I used to sit there and listen to Shepard on WOR in New York, that powerful, powerful station with the 50-kilowatt smile, clear channel from New York City. Um, And Shep was talking about the time that somebody in his neighborhood built something really impressive. He describes a group of friends in Hammond, Indiana, who were all very technically oriented, they, they were ham radio operators, and they were building their own rigs. They used to go down into Chicago, which was close to Hammond, and scour the surplus parts bins or the, the radio shops down there and look for stuff. This was pre-war, so it really wasn't surplus, but there was a lot of radio parts down there. And they would you know, find stuff and bring it back and build their own rigs. And there was a kind of a, a technical hierarchy that built up among these guys that, you know, where, where technical skills were prized and sort of established the pecking order. The guy at the top of the hierarchy was a guy who was a couple years, just a couple years older than most of the other kids. His name was Johnny Anderson, John Anderson. And Anderson was always a bit more advanced than the others. He was into the technical literature actually into the math, he would read the IRE journal, the Institute of Radio Engineers journal that he, that he somehow had sent to him. Uh, and they, as he would go with them as they went down into Chicago to check the, uh, the, uh, the radio stores. And Anderson was very mysterious about something he was building and parts that he was looking for. He didn't let on what he was working on. He didn't, he didn't talk about it at all. Until one day, he called up Shep's friend and said, hey, why don't you come on over to the workshop? I got something I want to show you. And the friend said, well, can I bring Shepard and some of the others? Oh, yeah, come on over. But this was really unusual. I could to get an invitation into this guy's workshop. They usually just would show up at at a specific time 
8 o'clock on a Saturday night, they went over there, and he had on the corner of his workbench. And, and Shep described a basement workshop filled with equipment that Anderson had homebrewed himself, which leads me to believe that he was a skilled home brewer. His workshop probably looked a lot like yours or, or even a little bit like mine. But uh, this was somebody who knew which end of the soldering iron to grab. And as they were talking to Anderson, he looked at his watch and he said, okay, it's about time. He said, what do you mean about time? And he went over to the end of the end of the workbench and he pulled off a towel that had been covering a machine that he had been working on, a rig that he had been working on, and there it was. And at just about 8.30, he turned it on and there was a one-inch, a one-inch cathode ray tube that began to glow. And Shepard looked at it and he saw the call signs for a Chicago radio station appear. And then, miraculously, a little face appeared and the face started talking and announced, I think it was WBKB in Chicago, and they were doing experimental test transmissions on television. This was the first time Shepard had ever seen television, and he was just flabbergasted. It was amazing that Johnny Anderson, who was probably 19 or 20 years old, had actually built a television receiver in his own workshop. I mean, pretty impressive stuff. Now, we started looking into this. There's a lot of information about Shep available on a website called Flick Lives. And there's a guy, Steve Glazer, W2SG, who has done a lot of research on the ham radio aspects of Shepard's life. We actually have a picture of Johnny Anderson as a, as a teenager. It looks like a high school yearbook picture. And we started to think about, okay, what did he build? First of all, the question was, did he really build it? Because some of the experimental stations were distributing kind of factory-made receivers so that people could do reception reports for them. But a, a fellow in Germany and I started looking into this. It's Joe, DL6ID. And um, Joe and I concluded that, yeah, he, he really built it because based on, because Shepard gave a really d detailed description, not only of the rig, but the process of building it, the fact that this guy was out scouring, looking for parts, we also looked at the literature that was available. What kind of art magazine articles were appearing, not only in the IRE Journal, but in QST, in the Gernsback magazines. And there were a number of articles that sounded a lot like what Shepard described. So Johnny Anderson was probably becoming well familiar with the theory of TV, but he was also being exposed in the literature to a number of different articles that described their kind of how-to build projects. It sounded to us like he didn't build it exactly like one of the articles said, but he took bits and pieces of the circuitry and put it in there, much like homebrewers do today. And we came to some conclusions that he definitely built it. He probably built it in 1939 or 1940. He probably used a one-inch RCA cathode ray tube called an RCA 913. These tubes were around because people were using them in oscilloscopes or oscillographs, as they call them, which were kind of the, the, the cool piece of test gear to have at the time. Shepard described a green image, and this would, would indicate that kind of tube. Later on, they came out with tubes that were black and white, but at that point, it was green. And uh, so 
it, it was kind of cool to do this because you, you found yourself getting closer and closer to that workbench that Shepard described. Now, Shepard's description is really priceless because we have an eyewitness to this demonstration of TV that took place 1939 or 1940. Shepard, who knew, again, Shepard himself knew which end of the soldering iron to grab. So the points that he hit hit were right. He described the chassis. He described the power supply. He described the tubes. And, and most of all, he described that one-inch CRT. He repeatedly described the CRT as tiny. He described it as a one-inch one cathode ray tube. And we, we checked and we looked. It's prob probably an RCA 913 tube. Now, one of the interesting things is you could, you could, if you go to YouTube, you could find projects where guys have used an RCA 913 in recent years, not to build TVs, but to build oscilloscopes. And you get a sense of what the display was like that Shepard saw. But this was an amazing achievement on the part of Johnny Anderson. I wish we had more information about, about that project. We, we, we have a bio on, on Anderson. His obit describes what happened to him in life. Um, but not, nothing more on the actual TV receiver that he built. But we also knew he was a home brewer because we, we found a QSL card, S, um, uh, Steve Glazer found a QSL card from him from 1938. And in it, he, in 1938, he had to list his transmitter and his receiver on the QSL card. For the receiver, he writes, nine-tube superhead. <laughs> Pretty good. I mean, so that's a, that's a homebrew nine-tube superhead that he built in 1938. So really, really impressive. And it was kind of fun to do the, uh, do the, uh, the background work on this. You guys have got to listen to Shep describe it. I have the link up on the Solder Smoke blog. But Shep really captures the spirit of homebrew. I mean, what it's like to build your own piece of gear, to be sort of on the cutting edge, as, as, as Anderson was and as, as Pete is now with, with, with SDR equipment. But to be there and to be doing something new and different it was it was really exciting, and, and Shepard's description of it is really good. So I, I, I take take a look. I, I I did a number of a number of blog posts on this thing, as Joe and I sort of went through the process of understanding what happened, but but quite good stuff. I, I it, it really really amazing. It, it kind of makes you wish you were a ham back in those days, Pete. Well, well, you said a couple magic words, magic words. Okay, first magic word is Chicago. Yep. Okay, in Chicago at that time, you had a lot of radio manufacturing going on, Halicrafters, and a whole bunch of others, tech, technical types that were, were building advanced state of the art. And Halicrafters built the panoramic adapter mm -hmm. box yep. with the one inch CRT. Yep. And it came out <laughs> at about that time. So he pro Anderson probably knows some guys at Halicrafters. Some of that stuff probably was hardware that was being built in the Chicago area. So yeah, I can see, I can see it. Uh, yes. I, yeah, I mean, it, at, when you first read about it, it's, it's almost hard to believe. But then the more you dig into it, the other thing you discover is how much TV work took place before World War II. We have we have a tendency, man. I grew up. And you probably did too, thinking of TV as a post-war thing, that, that people came back from yes. the war, then TV started. But actually, there was electronic television, not the spinning disc kind of stuff that took place in the 20s. But from like the mid-30s, early to mid-30s on, there was quite a bit of kind of 
CRT, electronic television, pioneered by, of course, Philo Farnsworth and his ideas. But a lot of stuff took place, and then it was all kind of just frozen for four or five years by World War II, and then it resumed afterwards. But but quite a bit of development there, so really good stuff. A, uh, one other thing, a couple other things I wanted to mention on the bench, uh, Pete. Uh, my 1712 rig has been completed. This is the, uh, the the kind of the Bidex-like rig, but built for 17 meters and 12 meters. My uh, my hopes for cycle 25 are kicking in. I'm hoping that cycle 25 is going to be really good. So I decided to go up in frequency, and I tried to build a version of the MythBuster rig, kind of a dual band band imaging two band rig. Uh, but instead of building one for 75 and 20, I built one for 17 and 12. 17 is a band I'm well familiar with. 12 is a band that I've never really operated on, but they're both work bands and they're both relatively free of contest kinds of competitive activity. So I, I selected a, um, an IF for this rig of 21.47 megahertz because I could get crystals at that frequency, I think from Mauser or DigiKey. And I got a bunch of these crystals. And then I, I built up a VFO, an LC VFO. I'm sorry, Pete, I'm sorry. I don't, don't mean to, I know you find this, you know, <laughs> painful. But, but, but I've, been, I've been watching Mike WU2D's videos about how to build a VFO, so I was inspired. And also, you are partially responsible, my friend, because you were the one who told me to buy the variable capacitor. And it turned out it was a variable capacitor from an old Helicrafters HT37, and it has temperature compensation caps in there. It's got a split stator so you could dial it in. So listen, I, I followed most, most of the advice of Mike uh, W2D, Mike Murphy, and Frank Harris, K0IYE. Most, but not all. I mean, I, I thought about trying to, to build it in a hermetically sealed die-cast box like Frank recommends. But the capacitor was too big. I couldn't fit it in the box. So I built it kind of just open. Now, but I used a lot of NPO caps. I used really solid construction. I nailed everything down onto the pine board. And the, I must say the VFO is, is remarkably stable. It runs around 3.5 megahertz. It's well buffered and, and everything else. It, it, it really doesn't drift. You wouldn't, you wouldn't really notice it. So I, I built that up, um, and then one of my problems was I had to figure out how to display, because I wanted, I wanted glowing numerals, Pete. This is my concession to the digital world that you are increasingly living in. I, 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 wanted, I had to figure out a way so that I could display both 17 meters and 12 meters on a little Sanjian display that I had. It is not Juliana Blue. It is red, because that's what I had in the junk box. But... I got it in there, and I figured out how to do it, and I, I described it in one of the YouTube things. I, I had some trouble with it. I didn't think I was going to be able to do it. I had to use an NE602 chip to shift one of the frequencies because the Sanjian chips will only allow you to add or subtract from, subtract from, or subtract the IF frequency from the input frequency. In my case, the IF frequency was higher than the input frequency of the VFO, and therefore, it just wouldn't work. It would display zeros. But but I, I found that I, if I put a little any 602 chip in there, I could shift one of the frequencies so that subtraction worked. 
<clears throat> so now, anyway, I got I got both of them um, displayed there. I have it in a, another um, kind of plywood box. You know, this the same style that I used for the MythBusters. So the two now I have four bands sitting there. Pete, look, twenty, seventy-five, um, seventeen, twelve meters, all boxed up and ready to go. I was in Home Depot last week and I spotted a little drain cover for the sink, the kitchen sink, that was just perfect to cover the speaker aperture, the speaker hole. I see your, look at your speaker behind you. You got a picture of a speaker that completely exposed. One slip of the screwdriver, boom. You got to get like a drain cover. Put a drain cover on there, Pete. That's what I did. And um, I, oh yeah, the other thing, one thing I'll say, I am not good with cabinet making. I'm not a good work woodworker. And I, I really hack away at this stuff. It's terrible. And I end up with pieces of wood that are not quite long enough or a little bit too long. But I found that there's ways of covering this up. Copper tape is really good. Put copper tape along the seams. It looks much better. You don't, you don't see the big gaps existing between the pieces of wood. But that's okay. We're not, we're not into cabinet making. We're, make, we're into radio building. And all this makes me think I need a store-bought antenna. I hate to say it. I know guys out there are you know, passing out in horror when they hear me say this, that I'm going to buy an antenna. But look, it's not like I'm buying a dipole. Buying a dipole is always kind of insane to me. It's like buying two pieces of wire and coax and having to buy it. Now, that's what I'm doing. I'm buying the hex beam because I want it to be more solidly constructed than I can do. I don't feel like spending a whole lot of time measuring wires and then cutting and then trimming and tuning. Just I'm going to buy it. I'm going to just just going to get it. Which one have you have you? Was it the K4KIO? I think that's the one I'm I'm looking at, and it's good because you could buy it for a limited number of bands and add bands later on. I'm probably going to buy it for twenty, seventeen, and twelve, and put the whole thing just up there. Get get it up on the roof, and, and that's it. So I think that that's yeah. coming. What's it weight? Twenty pounds. Or Twenty something pounds, like something like that. Yeah, it's yeah. it's about yeah. tw- it's about twice the weight of my old Moxon. My old Moxon was was nine pounds. I used to joke that it cost me nine pounds and only weighed nine pounds, but uh, you know you could do things with the hex beam that you can't really do with the Moxon, especially in terms of next nesting. So I think I'm I'm going to go that way. Um, final one final thing I got to talk about one my 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 latest project. And I, I have it here, but I don't think it's visible oh, on, the, on the screen. Oh, oh it's HQ100. Oh. The, the, oh, can, you, can you actually see it there? Yeah. yeah oh, you can it. see it. I hope it shows up on the uh, display here when we when we put this up. With the, with the clock. I, I took the clock out. The clock has oh, been removed. I, 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 pulled a cl- I did a clockectomy many years ago. You know, I, I realized, Pete, this for me, this is like a relatively new piece of gear. But I got this thing in 93. It's almost 30 years ago I've been kicking around with this thing. I picked it up in the Dominican Republic at the radio club, and it was in terrible shape. It wasn't working. Uh, it had been exposed to the tropical environment. It was covered in nicotine because the guy who owned it was a smoker. And, man, I, I worked on it. It was one of the first boat anchor projects that I ever worked on. I got the thing working. I found that one of the IF transformers was open, so B-plus wasn't getting to the tube. They don't work very well that way, by the way. No. Mm-hmm. no. Um, so I got that fixed. So I started, I, I had it for, for years. It was sitting on top of the DX100, and I would use it for an occasional AM contact. But then, you know, the, the band switch needed a shot of deoxid because it'll start getting sticky or not making good contact. So I pulled it off the DX100, put it on the bench, and I just sprayed some deoxid into the, 
antenna switch, fixed it up right away. But then I started thinking, I started looking at it and finding other little things that I could work on. And, you know, one thing leads to another and you start improving, you know, fixing, getting ideas. And I started looking at the Q multiplier. The HQ100 has a Q multiplier built in. And I have the manual and I started looking and I realized I had never really used the, the, the Q multiplier in this thing. So I started kind of aligning it and tuning it up and just sort of understanding how it would work. And you, I got to admit, it, it works like a charm on CW. It really narrows this thing down. I mean, without it, the, 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 the response, the, band, the bandwidth of the receiver is so broad that in many ways, it's almost like a direct conversion receiver. You're, you're, you can listen to both sides of zero beat. As you tune through a CW signal, it starts out high, then it goes down to low, then it goes down to zero, then it goes from zero and then it starts going high because you're listening to both sides. It's like a DC receiver. However, you flip that Q multiplier on, man, you're listening to just one side of zero beat. It's almost like single signal reception that you would get from a, a very narrow CW crystal filter. So I, I'm, I'm working on it and I'm, I'm improving it. You, also, there's, there's ideas that show up on the internet now that really didn't, didn't that I never had before. For example, <clears throat> Halicrafters in their design had, you, you could change the, the crystal calibrator and you just by changing the crystal, you could change it from a crystal calibrator to a 455KC BFO. The, the advantage is this allows you to use the, a BFO and the Q multiplier at just below the oscillation point, right? So you don't have to throw the, the, the Q multiplier into oscillation to listen to CW. You turn the BFO on and you, you're getting a tone and then you advance the Q multiplier just short of the point of oscillation so you get good maximum selectivity. But the problem is Halicrafters had to switch for the crystal calibrator and the BFO on the back of the chassis. So you'd have to reach around and, and throw the switch. I was always worried that I was going to electrocute myself just reaching back there. This guy, uh, D-Lab, the guy who, who does, he does a lot of good videos, good little ham radio videos, D-Lab, he got the idea of putting a switch right on the front panel. And there's a hole in the front panel for the control for the clock. Clock's not there anymore, but the hole's still there. Put a little switch in there, run a couple leads in the back. Now I can switch the BFO on, on and off from the, from the front of the rig. Sure. I mean, it is, I'm living large, Pete. This is, this is awesome. And the Q multiplier, I like the Q multiplier. Man, I'm, I'm, I'm listening to short, I do shortwave listening. I listen to all kinds of stations. I can hear New Zealand in the morning, direct from New Zealand. Really good stuff. So it's, it's kind of fun. It, you know, the Q multiplier thing made me feel guilty. I mean, how many QF1 Q multipliers have I destroyed? Yeah, <laughs> you you raised the price of the QF one <laughs> is what you've done. I I feel terrible. The, the carnage, the oh, the humanity. Uh, there's still a number of things that I need to do. Hey, people, one 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 thing I want to do. I want to mention for you and for our friend Steve N8NM a comparison between the HQ100 and a similar vintage, similar receiver, the Halicrafters S, S38E. S38. Whoa. I mean, I worked a lot on two S38Es, and I've worked on this HQ100 over the years. I must say, um, they shouldn't really be in the same category. The, the, the HQ100 is so much better. The construction is solid. 
Um, and look, I just made some comparisons. The, the S3080 came out between 1957 and 1961. The, the retail price was $54.95. It had, and they were robbing you. Yeah, it had five <laughs> tubes. So it was basically an All-American 5 modified for shortwave. It was ACDC. So if you plugged it in wrong, you, you risked elect- electrocution from the chassis. And um, the construction, I must say, was really flimsy. It was, it, it just, it just, you kind of, you, you looked at it wrong and it seemed like it would bend and distort and change frequency. Now, compare that with the HQ100, almost identical vintage from 1956 to 1960. It sold for $169. That was big money back then, 169 bucks. But instead of five tubes, it had 10 or 11 tubes. 11 if you include the, the BFO crystal calibrator that I just mentioned. It, it was not ACDC. It had a, had a real power supply in there. It had a regulator tube that kept the VFO stable. So, I mean, I, I can really see using this thing on a, on a day-to-day basis. Both had 455 KCIF, um, but... But this thing, I like the HQ100 a lot better. It's got it's got flywheels in there when you turn the you know the uh, the band spread knob. It's it's really really cool. I, I like I, I like it a lot. So there's still some things I need to work on, which is a, a good thing because it gives you something to to mess with, you know. Sure. And so I'll, I'll work on it. Yeah, you know, I wanted to just comment a sec second about you look at the front panel. Yeah. And and the two windows yeah. where you have the band spread and yeah. the main dial. That's a chunk of die cast metal. It is. I mean that thing. That thing is beefy, and you know, not notwithstanding that uh, other people will, during that vintage made p- perhaps a little more familiar radios like Helicrafters and National. You know the HRO and you know the SXAV8 and all that. But but Hammerlin had a really solid line of excellent excellent receivers. And uh, you know, you 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 look at that the SP six hundred JX seventeen, an amazing radio. I had one of those one time. It has had six V sixes in the audio amplifier stage. You you can hook that up to the speaker system, use in the AM, and it's like stereo. You know, just uh, that's it. I mean, there, there is so much there is so much audio yeah. coming out of this thing. I, I really have to turn it down. Now they had an audio circuit in there that was not really very popular. That really kind of restricted the audio output. And one of the mods that you'll find in the AM window Change or other places yeah. is just pull that thing out and let let the whole frequency range of audio go through. And I did that. It sounds it does sound a lot better. The speaker quality is important too. I had kind of a cheap speaker in there before, and it wasn't doing it justice. I put a nicer speaker in there and made it made a big, big, big improvement. You know, the other thing that's really interesting is that these these receivers were, were many of them were built in New York City on 34th Street in Manhattan. I mean, I was just up there, but it's in, it's amazing to me that there was a time not long ago when they were actually doing electronic manufacturing in the heart of New York City. You could never, you'd never do that now. But he, even even then, Hammerlin was in the process of transferring the, the manufacturing operations out of New York City to Mars Hill, North Carolina. Carolina. Yeah. And so that that took place during the period where the receiver was this receiver was being built. I noticed that the um, the, the crystal calibrator that now is the BFO is marked uh, ha- Hammerland Radio Company, uh, New York One, New York. 
Yeah. 34th Street. On 34th Street. The manual indicates 34th Street. Yeah. I, I know who, who owned it in the Dominican Republic. It was HI3AGS, Antonio Gomez. I never met him, but but I, his, his, his name is marked in the book. And also, when you look inside, you can see on the chassis, uh, somebody who was either working on it or owned it has written his name, scratched his name on the inside of the chassis, Rafael Inda. I don't know who who he is. They're both both probably long gone, but but it, it's kind of cool to have this connection to the old radio. You you need to look up one more piece of information, Bill. What's on that? The HQ one hundred. The HQ one hundred is related to the Bank of America. I'm going to write this down. The Bank of America. Because the Bank of America originally started out as the Bank of Italy by A. P. Giannini in San Francisco. And if you'll look at the later ownership of Hammerlin, it was a division of the AP Giannini Scientific Company. I'm going to check it out. Who knows? A connection to Italia. To the Bank of America. Oh, All right. Good <laughs> there stuff. You go. Good stuff. Pete, before we move on to your bench, Shameless Commerce Division. Now, we oh, already we yes. already mentioned our sponsor at, at Parts Candy, but... but um, uh, we still have a regular old, uh, you know, shameless commerce division. And I, I just want to encourage people. Patreon has become a real good supporter, a good way to support the podcast and the blog. And I'm really grateful to everybody who's signed up as as patron patrons through Patreon. It's an easy way to do it, and it also provides an easy way for us to throw some support back at the people who've been kind enough to sponsor. Uh, I mean, I, I do use most of the money that comes in for buying parts, buying equipment, buying new microphones, stuff that we talk about, things like that. Uh, so, so please take a look at that. Also, you know, you want to purchase something, use the, uh, the Amazon box in the, on the, on the right-hand column of the blog. Now, Pete, Pete mentioned, Pete's going to mention a book and by, by Jack Purdom. I actually put that book up there. So it, it shows up on the Amazon ad. You'll see Jack's book there. And you could buy Jack's book through that thing. We encourage you to do that. But you could also use the search box to search for anything. As long as you begin the search on the box on the Solder Smoke page, cha-ching, Bezos sends us some money. You know, And so, so do that. Finally, one other thing I want to mention. Um, Google ads are back on the, on the blog. There's two Google ads there. I haven't gone crazy with it, right? But there's two Google ads there. And the, the, the kind of the interesting thing about that is that they're not keyed to what I'm interested in or what Pete's necessarily interested in. The ads that are placed there are based on what Google has figured about, out about you, the individual listener or viewer of the blog. So depending on demographics, kind of search patterns, they'll pop ads up there. Actually, which makes it pretty kind of almost eerily responsive. But anyway, I just wanted to explain that those ads are there. We put them up, and, um, and well, there they are. And that's what's going on with that. Sometimes I'll get ads, guys will write to me and say, why are you putting that horrible ad on your site? I'm saying, look, I didn't, I didn't do it. <laughs> Google has decided that, that you might be interested in that stuff. Enough yeah, said. If, if, if an ad shows up for ladies' underwear, you have interest other than the ham radio. <laughs> <laughs> well, a lot, of, a lot of ads in that area do show up. Yeah, yeah, they do. People, 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 Pete have a diversity of interests, a wide variety yes, of interests, yes. and we, and and who are we to criticize them? Yeah, Pete, you've got 
you've got the um, the the PSSST behind you. Yes. Tell us about it. Tell us what's going on on the on well, P, well, P. Giuliano's bench. First of, I, I do want to say it's probably important that you go to the Solder Smoke blog and search on the Amazon box. We need to put some business back in the Bezos. He he lost twenty billion dollars <laughs> in one day. The poor man. <laughs> twenty. It, it, and, you know, and he had to spend all that money raising the bridge in the Netherlands to get his boat out. Somebody yeah. wrote back and said, why didn't he just drop the ocean level a little bit? Then he could have done it the same way. Either way, he could have done He went with the, raising the yeah. bridge, and people were mad about that. Yes. Well, okay, what's on my bench? Uh, the background, which is a really large picture, is, is actually the pea shooter, which is a variant of the P3ST. And the, the only difference between... The P3ST and the P-Shooter is the P, P3ST used the seven transistors, the 2N22s, the 2N2219, and the, well, I put an RD06HHF1. And <clears throat> it has three steerable stages that were the 2N22-22As, and I replaced the three steerable stages with uh, Mimic devices, and you have two choices, the AG303, S86G or the Mar 6 Plus, and they're, they're roughly equivalent, you know, just a little difference in biasing. But I had told you, Bill, that my goal was the 6x4x3, by by and so I found a chunk of metal that was 4.25, and <laughs> I wasn't going to cut it, uh, so I just went to 6, 4.25 by 3. And uh, it's interesting that you should mention about covering the speaker cone. Well, I, I put that in there because that is actually a display of knack. And the reason it's knack is I had to calculate very accurately what size of hole. That hole was cut on my CNC. And the problem that you have to concern yourself with is you say the speaker is two and a half inches, so I'll just create a circle two and a half inches. And you can't because you get the cutter. <laughs> And I used an eighth inch cutter. So I had to calculate what radius that I would actually have to put into the program to allow for the eighth inch cutter. And if you look at the outer ring of that speaker, it mates with a hole. <laughs> you can this see is, it. You know, all that all that engineering training was worth every cent. There you go. <laughs> yeah. And you're this you're you're much you're much more precise than I am because what I did is I I took the speaker and I said, Oh, it's a three inch speaker. Chisel. <laughs> no, I have a circular saw. A circular saw. Like a a two inch circular saw. And I figured, okay, the speaker's bigger than the hole. <laughs> Take it out, boom, slap it in there. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, uh Actually, it, it works very well, and, and I'm really delighted. I had a few things that I had to de deal with. Right behind my head is a color TFT display, which is less than one inch. And and you're kind of limited. It's, it's actually an 80 by 160 or 80 by 128. I'm a little fuzzy on that, but it's about half the size of the normal 1.8 inch but it really works well. It's really small, and the thing that's nice about it, it's got four mounting holes. Some of the real small color TFT displays, Bill, have no mounting. I mean, there's no mounting holes. It's just this, this display, and I, I struggled 
coming up with different methods to, to mount these the smaller 1.4 inch. This is less than an inch and boy it really works well. You're, you're a little limited in what you can display but you get the color. Does it have and, mounting and, holes? Yes. Okay. Four mounting holes. Oh, excellent. Four and they're cheap. Wow, I think really you nice. Get, you get three for ten bucks. Wow. So, uh, and it also, I have picked a new color scheme. It's cranberry. <laughs> you noticed the front pedal? I did. We, I noticed the discussion of cranberry. This was inspired by somebody else. Somebody else did a cranberry thing too, right? Yeah, cranberry. And, and the knobs kind of follow something old, something new, something borrowed, something blue. Something Those Juliana are blue. Yes, those are knobs, and that's actually what started me on the blue. Those are knobs from an SBE 33. I, I knew I recognized them. I have them here. You sent me one, and I, yeah. ha I have it here. And and the thing is, uh, by the way, right along with this, I want to share a bit of tribal knowledge here. <clears throat> the wife managed to get one of her pieces of jewelry kind of honked up. And so uh, she said, I have to get it cleaned. And I don't know, she got some kind of cleansing cream in it and it started to tarnish the, the metal on this ring. So the local, Ben Bridge, wanted a hundred bucks to clean this thing. I bought an ultrasonic cleaner for about $40. <laughs> Amazon's your friend. So these knobs were grungy looking. So I said, hey, I got the cleaner. Put them in there. Those knobs were Dry grease, oh, man. cigarette smoke. Look at this. I got the HQ100. I need an ultrasonic cleaner. Yeah, you do. I do. The, the knobs in there, you knobs in there, and you got a time setting. And the, the, I guess the, Bezos the, could send me one of these, right? Yeah. Oh man. That's where you can get it. Yeah. Oh wow. Ultrasonic I want. I, yeah, I want. I want my knobs to look that good. As a matter of fact, the uh, tank size, it's kind of oval shape, is uh, approximately six inches long, four inches wide. So you can put more than one knob in there at a time. And, I mean, it's cleaned her jewelry, so she, I've done it a couple times now because she says, oh, you can clean it, I don't have to worry, <laughs> I don't have to worry about it. <laughs> finally, finally a piece of test gear that the, the XYL will, 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 will approve of. Yeah. The shack is finally yeah. proving useful after yeah. all these years. Ultrasonic cleaner, really good, because a lot of those, not, you know, they got kind of grooves in them, and over a period of time, now the only thing it, it did do, and you can fix this, if you look the knob right above my head, you'll see the indent used to have a white marking in it. You can yeah. buy the lacquer lacquer stick from yeah. uh, Antique Electronic Supply. It'll cost you a couple of bucks, and a stick will last you 100 years. So you could put that white stuff back, but it cleans everything out. So these, these ultrasonic tanks, 40 bucks. And I, I mean, I, you afterwards say, why didn't I get this a long time ago? <laughs> I know. You know, here, you know. Uh, here I am with the, the 440 cleaner and and, a, and a, a roll of paper trying to scrub out. But, you know, um, one thing you mentioned along these lines, Mike, W2D, when he was cleaning up one of the old rigs that he was working on, he's been using this stuff called Never Dull. Never Dull. And, man, it shines up the chassis. I looked at his chassis. I said, damn, I want my chassis to look like that. So I've got an order into Bezos for some never dull. But you, yeah, you've taken yeah. it to a whole new level with the ultrasonic cleaner there, Pete. 
Yeah, well, it just uh, it was sitting there, and I said, "Gee, I wonder if this will clean up." <laughs> and it does. Now, nah, I mean, you you definitely had this in mind when you bought it. You said, yeah, like, <laughs> yeah, well, I'll get it for the wife's jewelry, but so, then it could also be useful for the knobs. Hey, but wait a second. So you started out with P three T, the first one, P3ST. and then you went to the P shooter, which you have behind you. Correct. But then you went a step beyond, and you were into the pipsqueak. Correct. Correct. So right. tell us, but I understand that didn't end well. Well, it's kind of like you get to the point, you say, let's put it aside and let me think about definitely, it. Definitely, yeah, I definitely. All right. I had, actually, I had a steerable board four or five years ago, and it had a couple of uh, J310s were set up as dual gate MOSFETs, and I had various filters in there. One time I had a 12 megahertz filter, and one time I had a commercial 9 megahertz filter in there. So one of the filters that I made, crystal filter that I made, was at 4.9152. And then I had some 19.2 uh, megahertz uh, crystals that I built a VXO. And if you take the 19.2 and you take the 4.9152, you subtract them, you get 20 meters. And you get a slice from around 14260 to 14300, somewhere in there. So I figured, man, this will work cool, VXO. Not a VFO, but a VXO because it's more stable. And I put it together, and the thing starts to oscillate. And matter of fact, the other thing I did a little different is I used a tap capacitance network across the, the stages for tuning the stages. I'm not sure why it oscillates. And this board, the only thing I have changed on it is the tap capacitors and a different filter. So I, I know it has worked previously and, and worked very well. So something is in there, and it's like trying to track it down. And I, I'm, wow. not sh I'm sure what it is. So you, after you screw around with it for a long time, you say, you know what? I need to put this aside, think a, think a bit about it. But it would be kind of cool because it has two things, a homebrew filter and a VXO. Man, no, and I, and I, I'm really glad that you say that you just you put it aside and let it let it kind of sit for a while and go back because in one of your original messages you indicated that you had taken a, a chainsaw and, that, yeah. <laughs> and i said oh man I, I i've been there i mean i've had that feeling I, I i actually say i've said a number of times in the podcast that i have been so frustrated with a homebrew rig that in my dreams I'm, i start dreaming about it shepherd was talking about this i dreamed in the dream i dreamt that i pulled every single component off of the PC board, the whole PC board, the rig there, you know, with, with with 50 or 60 components, and I pulled every one of them off because I couldn't get it to work right. So I'm glad. Yeah, leave it on the shelf there for a while. Come back. It'll. Yeah, it'll you know, it. it's well. The other thing too is I mentioned in the last podcast. Uh, my actual is not in the best of health, and I'm a principal caregiver here. I do have help coming in, but I don't have the time. No, uh, you don't. You got you know like before. Now, one other project on the bench, and then I want to talk about Jack and Elle's book, is um, I'm going to try to steal a couple of hours on field day. I said to myself, where is the real Pete Giuliano, and what have they done with him? <laughs> <laughs> field day? Just, Pete, there's mosquitoes out there. It's hot. Well, yeah, yeah well, you know, just a oh, God, so, Okay, so, go, so, go for it. Go for it, old so, man. I'll be, but I'll, I was taken by... Thomas Witherspoon. 
He causes Thomas, a lot of Thomas causes a lot of trouble, a lot of ideas, he, he, a lot of he was out innovation. There with a with a, with a Pota He's a disruptor. Pota. Pota. And he had this. You know, uh, I have a KX three. Thanks to you, I have a KX three, and K Elcraft sells this whip antenna. It's like a couple hundred bucks, and it's just a coil with a whip. You know, a whip that you get it out of kilter and you bent the whip. So I said, man, I'm not going to spend that kind of money for that little thing. And they said, oh, yeah. And Thomas came up with a uh, neat antenna. Uh, his call is K4SWL, I think. Yep. He came up with a neat antenna. He, he goes to Kmart, buys 100 feet of speaker wire. He cut, cuts off a chunk 28 and a half feet, peels it apart. One is the counterpoise, the other is the antenna. throws it up in the tree, and he's he's working POTA. So I said, there's got to be a better way of that. I... I the engineer in me says, mm, I ain't going to do that. So I did find, uh, uh, Bezos is your friend, a nine-foot man-pack takedown whip antenna. It's sort of almost like, you, you know how the, uh, the visually impaired have this have the canes that all fold out. Yeah, down. yeah, yeah. This is the same thing. And, and it's about 45 bucks, and it's really well-made, and it's got the standard connector on it. So I said... Hmm, nine feet. So then I'm thinking about a loading coil in the base section. So you can actually get this thing like 16 feet long, which would be a hell of an antenna with a counterpoise. So I'm running some tests on that, and that seems to be working pretty well. And of uh, what course you, working well on what band? Well, that's the point. Uh, the KX3 has got a built-in antenna tuner. So you're looking at 20, 17, and 15 meters. Forget 17 for field day, but... 20 and 15 and, and 12 meters would be kind of interesting. It would be so, good. I think 12 meters, you can't, 12 meters not field day either, though, I think. You're, yeah. You're, you're, well, I'm just saying. Yeah, you, yeah. You know, but for, but for, 20 and 15 would be really good. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And and I've got a camera tripod that was broken, and I repurposed it, so it's the base for it. And, this, and there were some pictures on the blog. You can see that thing sticking away <laughs> up in the sky. Pete, you could you could win your division. You could win. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. There you go. Now, are you, you're going to go sideband, right? Not CW. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. What? What? what, what? Yeah, yeah. CW? I, I know. I know. What, what CW is. Well, but I, I mean, you know, you, when you start talking about field day, I'm thinking he might be just just getting so nostalgic here that he's going to be dots and dashing soon. CW stands for see what. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, I want to spend a little time on something really exciting. On my blog, n6qw.blogspot.com, there's a current uh, listing in there, a current posting about a new SDR transceiver that's about to be unveiled at FDIM. And the really important thing about this project, two U.S. hams, uh, Jack Purdom and Al Peter, have been working on this for a couple of years now. So it's designed and birthed here in the United States. And the thing that's really significant about this project is they have created a book, and you were kind enough to send me that book. And this book is sort of like the Bible of how to build the project. And it's not just a Heathkit tab A slot B. This gives you the theory behind it why they do certain things, and they chunk it down into modules. 
So, I mean, you're not overwhelmed by the sheer magnitude of information. They start out and they explain what every circuit is, and it's got charts and graphs, and it's a QRP rig, but it's QRP like at the 1520 watt level. But this thing has got a magnificent display, and I want to talk a little further about it. And, and I think the really important thing is they've got a not only the book, but the website reflector is as soon as they present the FDIM, they're going to load the Gerber files, the schematics, the bill of materials, uh, the GitHub, so you get the code, and, and all these things so that you can essentially have access to all of the information. And, and I, I'm really, I've looked at the book, and I haven't read it in detail because I just don't have the time, but just thumbing through it, I could see how they put this whole thing together. And it's put together by two hams, not, not some guy that, by the way, is a techie type and software guy. Purdom's a software guy. Al is, Al is the hardware guy. Now, there's some important things to note. And first off, this is an SDR transceiver without an external computer. Now, I have a really neat small SDR transceiver that I homebrew, but it's got a Raspberry Pi that's attached to it. This uses a Teensy 4.1. As a matter of fact, the title of the transceiver, I said, man, that's a strange title. The T41EPSDT. But the T41 is for the Teensy. It's the Teensy microcontroller running at 600 megahertz available in the U.S. from Oregon, from PJRC. It's a very, very powerful processor. So they're doing it. So at 600 megahertz, you can really do a lot of the fast 48 transforms, the Hilbert transforms. And unlike the micro SDX that's using a, a, a nano, essentially, at 16 megahertz, it's overpowered. That 16 megahertz is just not, doesn't have the guts to make it work. But you put a teensy in there, it really is significant. Now, I was privy, I was privy to a video that shows the noise reduction and the digital signal processing. And you listen to the band, and it's crap. Punch the buttons in, and boom, it's there. Now, the other thing is, you'll love this, Bill. They must have listened to you because, as such, there are no menus. There's push buttons. <laughs> so, because you know, menus are for restaurants. So you got a you got an array of matrix of buttons, and you push the button. Li but libraries are for books. Yes, and the other thing that's interesting is a, there's a lot of current crop of uh, SDR transceivers coming out of um, China, and some of them are in the $400 range, $500 range, but hidden, not so well displayed, is some of these, and this other words, Keith SDR is another example of this. The window that you're looking at, the spectrum you're looking at, is typically only 25 kilohertz. Jack's and L's box is 192. Wow. So so essentially you can set that thing at 7100 and look all the way to the from top of the band. To say, top of the band. Yep. So they're saying for a, a, a guy that's like running this QRP, because it is QRP, and you're working a contest, because you can look at almost 200 kilohertz, you can do the search and pounce. Yep. So it, it gives you the leverage that you have. That's the really other thing cool. Is, 
The other thing is, most of the transceivers that are come out are using a display not much bigger than it's behind my head. <laughs> they, you could put up to, I think, either a five, a seven, or nine-inch display. Wow. So with a nine-inch display, I mean, then you're not squinting. <laughs> it's not like the old helicrafters. You get to the end of the dial, you can't read the tick marks because it's a blur. <laughs> I mean, this is, this is nice. And, and again, the noise reduction, absolutely amazing. And and the filters are, are brick wall. Now, they had to use the Hilbert transforms, and I, I guess they used the Iowa Hill software to design the filters. And the filters are, are adjustable. Now, the other thing is, you open up the box, and you look in here, and you say, where in the hell is everything? <laughs> There's seven little circuit boards in there, seven little circuit boards. And the way in which they arrange the circuit boards gives you the capability, like I always espouse, experimenter's platform. Experimenter's platform. So if you want to change something, you want to experiment with it. So, I mean, who opens up their ICOM 7300 and says, hey, yeah, I've got to experiment no, with this. Nobody. Nobody. But these guys have done this, and they've, they've looked at the thing because Jack is... Yeah, he's a PhD. He used to teach at Purdue. So, I mean, this guy does what he's doing, but he's a real solid guy, and he's he's been a ham for a long time. He, he goes back to the 1950s being licensed. So, indeed, he's got a lot of a lot of miles behind him, so he understands this stuff. So he's done some things uh, in the software that, you know, relate to there's software, the guys just write software and say, oh yeah, the software works, it works for me. But the software has been, it works for you. And that's the difference. So many times the software is so complex that you don't know what you're doing. I think the push-button matrix was really a clever idea because, I mean, even the KX3's got some menus, you got to push buttons and you got to know which one you got to push. And this, yeah, you got the matrix. Very nice. And and, and there's a there's a club... It's thinking about selling a semi-kit, which means that the boards will be sold to you with the surface mount devices soldered. So so this way, what you end up doing with the semi-kit is you got to wire in some toroids, put them in there. Um, and Al did a lot of work on the, the PA stage. He wanted to make sure that that thing was rock solid across the spectrum. So in other words, you know, some things will work great at 75 meters, 40 meters, you put them on 17, they start to oscillate, you know, that typical problem that we all see. So, I mean, I, I just think um, they have done a superb job and it's gonna be at FDIM and uh, they're gonna be demonstrating it in operation there, which I think is really, I think there's one part of FDIM where they have you know, Rick's displaying there actually on the air. But my hat is off to those guys because, uh, first of I am very concerned, and, and you've seen some of this in my blog postings, that we're just not advancing the state of the art because people don't want to take that step. And, and if all you do is live in the past, we'll never advance the technology. But I'll tell you this, there's a lot of stuff going off, going on offshore in SDR that people are advancing the state of the art and are leaving us behind. 
And yeah, I hear the guys saying, yeah, I got my 7300 and you know, I'm doing this. I said, did you ever build anything? No, no, I never, never built anything. You know, I just buy the stuff. And, and our hobby doesn't progress. And just listen what you started off with about Shep. There's this guy in his basement. <laughs> I know. In, in 1939, 1940, <laughs> yeah. these guys were they, they were kids, and they were building superhead receivers and yeah. TV receivers. So so that's my point, Bill. That's my point. He got the IRE. He got the publications. He did the research. He didn't have a credit card because he didn't exist back then. He didn't have the internet. That's right. So if we don't, if we don't take what's occurring in terms of the technology and try to include it in our in our in our rigs uh we're we're going to die off and all you're going to have is a bunch of appliance operators box talk extras and i'm sorry being derisive like that but it's true and and you know a guy says yeah in six weeks i got my extra what do you mean you got your extra <laughs> in six weeks you know that, 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 to me that doesn't make any sense you just you need to have that that time in the trenches to really understand what that that yeah. implies. Now, also on my blog <laughs> is something that has captured my imagination. That's the work of JF3HZB. It is a thing of beauty. Yes. It is amazing. I, I saw this a while back, and, and I'm glad you, you saw it recently because it reminded us all what a beautiful thing this is. Pete, what you could have done with this when you were building those HW101s. HW101. <laughs> or even the KMTWM4. Can you imagine that? that well, Pete's, I would have had, had to cut the squirrel Pete, the thing. <laughs> tell, us, tell us about it. Tell us about okay. it. It's such a beautiful thing. First of two specific points here. Is one is the shift away from the Arduino. There's a new microcontroller unit called the ESP32. Actually, there was one that preceded that, the ESP2266, and I'm not that familiar with them. But the ESP32, ESP, uh, first of programs with the Arduino IDE, but it's a completely different architecture. But you can port over whatever, whatever you have in design for the uh, Arduino over to the ESP32 just by putting the right pins in. But what's significant about this, it, typically the Arduinos have about 30 kilobytes of program space. This has got four megabytes. So you can write 10 times the size of program for this device. The other thing it has is wireless and Bluetooth. And I've, I've actually, they have some sample programs and I put the wireless in there and you can create a web page. So <clears throat> this is what you can do. You have other hobbies, like people watch the weather. You can put one of these ESP32s outside and hook it up to a rain gauge. It'll measure the rain gauge and send the information to your router. <laughs> and you have a web page you can call up on your computer and you can see how much water there is in the rain gauge. You don't have to go outside and get wet <laughs> to read the rain gauge. And the other thing is the cost. You can buy the ESP32 with wireless Bluetooth. Oh, by the way, they run at 240 megahertz, not 16. 10 bucks. Now, I had a shocker here. I, I smoked the Nano. Yeah, every once in a while I smoke things. And I smoked the Nano. So I said, hey, I'll buy some more. 
about six, eight months ago, I bought a three-pack of Nanos. It was $13. Three-pack of Nanos. R3, $13. I went back and says, gee, I'll order that again. It's now $13 each. $39. So, I mean, the price has gone up in the Nanos, so now you have the ESP32. And you can, you can uh, add the functionality so when your menu calls up different Arduino, you know, the Nano, the Mega, the Pro Mini, what have you, it, it gets expanded to include the ESP32. So I'm amazed. Now, the other feature, the thing that catches your eye, the same color TFT display, instead of just having numbers, has the circular dials. That was a beautiful <laughs> part. That's a beautiful part. It, so, it, it looked like the HQ100, but yeah, nicer. So, but it has actually three readouts. The bottom circular dial will say like 7.1, 7.15, 7 7.2. The upper circular dial reads 1, so it would read 7151, 7152, 7153. But the upper dial is a box that has the actual frequency in, like you have on your Sanjan display. So it'll read 7.151.035. Glowing numerals. So I mean, glowing numerals. And a dial. And so, and so you get color TFT for about 6 bucks, 10 bucks for the ESP32 encoder. So back, we're back at $20, but you could have this dial. It's amazing. It's going to be amazing. It's just amazing. Like you always say, it's, it's a great time to be a home brewer. Yeah. And yeah, and I, and I think you're right about advancing the art. I wish I, wish I could do more of it. I, I, I find myself having difficulty advancing into the 1970s. <laughs> but, but, I, but, you know, but I try, and, and we, all, we all try, but I think you're absolutely right. And I, I'm really glad that, that, uh, that, that Jack Purdom has, and, and uh, Al Peter, and Peter have, have, and Al Peters have, have, have written this up because when they write it, it 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 continues. So somebody might pick up their book in five or ten years and pick it up and then go with it and move forward and see what they did in the past. This is the importance of all the stuff that you do in, in all your writing and all your stuff on the internet. I remember I I first met Pete Giuliano. I think through an article in Sprat, and there was this this guy who was writing, and he and he was answering all the questions that I had. So that's how I got in touch with Pete, and that kind of that kind of sharing of tribal knowledge is is really really important. And I'm glad they're bringing it into the digital age. It's 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 great that there's a homebrew element to this because, like you said, the scary part about some of the SDR stuff is a guy's plunked down money for a 7300 and. It it sounds great, you know, but but they have, yeah. they have no idea what's going on inside that box. Yeah, yeah, I, and I think that that's the important thing is is that um, we we've just opened the door, and, and you know, think about it for a minute. Um, two companies, Flex Radio and Raytheon, they are building the next generation of communications equipment for the U.S. Air Force. Uh, it was Art Collins and old Iron Pants, Curtis LeMay, decided we're going to put single sideband in the 50s in the U.S. Air Force uh, communication system. So today, someone's decided we're going to put SDR in the communication system. And, and of course, the SDR 
immediately allows you encryption. <laughs> I mean, you, you could write encryption algorithms. So once you have the SDR, the encryption algorithms are just a flip of a switch. Fantastic so stuff, Pete. Fantastic see stuff. The, see the stuff coming. So anyway, I didn't mean to belabor the issue, but look at my blog. No, it's 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 really 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 well said, and, and a lot of good ideas there. And go to the Solder Spoke blog. Click on the Amazon blog. I think it's thirty two bucks. Is, is get the, the book. Buy the, buy the book from these guys. It's right there. Well, and by, I actually have way, I actually have the blo- the book displayed. So if you want, you just click on the book there from the Solder Smoke blog, and Bob will be your uncle. Yeah, we we found out that in if you're in New Zealand, it's sixty five dollars. Now I'm not sure how sixty five New Zealand dollars equate to thirty two U.S. dollars, but that sounded like a bigger number to me. Hey Pete, can you stick around for mailbag? I know you got duties. Yes, yes. All yes, right, man. It's ahead. time. It's time for uh, for mailbag. We've got a we've got a pretty good extensive worldwide mailbag. First, uh, James W zero JKG is joining the Color Burst Liberation Army, the CBLA, and others are out there building rigs for this uh, for this this kind of project, the Michigan Mighty Might. I've sent out a number of crystals. I thought we were done, but I, I found a few more, and guys wrote in they wanted them, and I've sent them to them. We're looking forward to reports. Please send us pictures and, and videos when you get these things working. Pete, we, we got a great email from Jorgen, SM4WWG. What a wonderful email this was. He was so nice. And he just, you know, like many of the emails. And he's now right. Yeah, he's right. He, he pointed out that because of our podcast, he's no longer wrong. Yes. And in the sense that he has joined the GQRP club and is now receiving Sprat magazine, that wonderful, wonderful magazine. But a really beautiful message. Thank you very much, Jorgen. That's what keeps us going here on the podcast. Dennis, WC8, Whiskey Charlie 8 Charlie, wrote a word to you offering some help in your efforts to get uh, software for the Max 2870 board. I know that's an effort that continues. Our good friend Jack, November Golf 2 Echo, he's the uh, the mountain topper who lives here in Northern Virginia, a uh, recently retired U.S. Army officer, and he p- reports on progress in the right to repair movement. Progress in the right to repair. You know, there's been a little bit of bounce back on this. I don't know if you saw the story, but it's a, it's it's terrible what's going on in Ukraine. But a whole bunch of John Deere tractors were stolen out of a out of a dealership in Ukraine, and they put them on trains, sending them back to Russia, where they th- thought they were going to use them. And John Deere was able to remotely shut them all down. <laughs> <laughs> so sometimes sometimes the universe lines up on your side there. Right? That was really good. But thanks for that message, John, uh, Jack. Uh, Jim, K9JM, he said he reports that someone is cutting into our business model because they're selling solder candles, candles that are scented with solder smoke. This gets back to the cologne, another April 1 story. But what Jim reports is a real deal. Uh, and it and, and apparently you can order yeah, these. You, these, you notice uh, where they're from? Wimberley, Texas. Wimberley, Texas. Maybe Wimberley, in Wimberley, Texas. this kind of odor is seen as, you know. You know Wimberley used to be uh, a home QTH of, of Bud Whitney. Now, Bud Whitney is used to be 9B1OI. And if in the 70s, if you ever wanted a contact with Singapore, Bud was your guy. He was always on 20 meters. 
And I can remember working him mobile on my, on my way to work. And he was from Wimbledon, Texas. So well, there's a connection there. All right. Well, solder, solder candles. All right, good. Uh, we'll continue here. Um, let's see. Um, who else we have? Oh, Chuck WB9KZY has correctly identified the location of the solder smokes IBEW stickers in New York City. I, I put up a picture of one of the stickers, and uh, Chuck did some amazing work on Google Maps, and he spotted it at the corner of 64th Street and 5th Avenue, as did Dan Random, who, is, who lives in New York City. He immediately, he Dan was able to spot it because of the skyline that I included. So he just, he sort of just instinctively triangulated and said where it was. Uh, Dave Bamford, who lives nearby all this activity on the Upper East Side of New York City, was suitably impressed. We hope that uh, Dave uh, spots some of the other speak other other stickers and, and reports back to us on them. Um, Farhan sent us an interesting email about a video that was put out about a, a guy Don Lancaster, who was active in kind of the the computer chip early days, and he wrote uh, Don, Don apparently wrote an article about uh, the electric electronic typewriter one of the first tv keyboards. typewriter tv, TV typewriter type. and um farhan actually built one of these things as a kid and this it turns out that don was a ham and i was really impressed by the homebrew skills hey man homebrew your own keyboard get those little micro switches in there all you lame appliance operators using store-bought keyboards <laughs> Good, great stuff. Anyway, it was and, good. To, and the reason you're on the internet now with the keyboard is Lancaster. Because, because of that, Don <laughs> Lancaster. Three cheers for Don Lancaster, and thanks for sending that to us, uh, Farhan. Uh, Dean, KK4DAS, our friend from right here in Fairfax County, Virginia, actually was out in QRP to the field, kind of a, a kind of foreshadowing of your 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 field day adventures, Pete. Um, and he, uh, he, he mentioned on the internet that he was on the air on 40 meters. I fired up my Digitia and got on 40 and I heard him in there and we had a homebrew to homebrew uh, QSO, both of us running homebrew rigs. He was on his furlough 40. Both of us QRP and I felt virtuous. All, all of five miles. All of five miles. Oh, the only thing <laughs> would have been better if we had been on CW. Yeah. See what? <laughs> um, let's see what else we got here. Oh, great emails. Always get great comments from our friend out in Portland, Todd, K7TFC. He likes my ingenious use of the drain screen as a speaker protector on the 1712 rig. And he also had good thoughts, Pete, related to something that you've been talking about and I talked about a little bit about, and he was referring to the, uh, the, 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 TV, the TV typewriter. He talked about, a granular kind of modular approach to home brewing as seen in the Don Lancaster video with, with a lot of different skills involved, woodworking, hardware work, software work, uh, digital logic. The same thing is going on with the kind of rigs that you've been working on. There's a variety of skills. Like, you know, you talk about Jack being the software guy and, um, and Al being more the hardware guy. They combine a lot of different skills there. Always a thought. Synergy. Yep, that's Great it. Synergy. Always a good thought. Thoughtful comments there from from Todd. Um, we got a nice email uh, from 
from Lex, Papa Hotel 2, Lima Bravo. He was horrified, and I'm being facetious here, by my reverse polarity protection circuit. I found that reverse polarity protection circuits are the kind of things that can provoke real anger. <laughs> yeah, I've run into that. Yes. Like, you put it in there and you think, ah, I've, I've protected this thing from reverse. Then, no, you got to do it this way. The other thing that provokes this kind of anger, and I, and I know Lex wasn't really angry. I'm glad he sent, the, sent this along. It made me think about things. But it reminded me of something that Todd said, because I, I had referred to the use of uh, WD-40. There are some WD-40 haters out there, Pete. And haters going to hate, you know? WD-40, for them, the devil's brew. Now, I, I was influenced by friends in Ireland who told me that WD-40 was the Pope's pee, which is apparently a, say, a way of saying it's really good stuff, but apparently no. Um, Todd, Todd grew up, it wasn't his fault. It was his upbringing. He, his, his father hated WD-40 and Todd... Because it, it gunked things up. It, yeah, it gunks uh, things up. Yeah, it gunks things up. But it, 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 for a short time, it's very satisfying. It's sort of, I don't know, like a lot of things like that. Um, Roger, Papa Alpha One Zulu Zulu, sent us some great information on shortwave listening and the numbers station. I put that up on the blog. Really interesting stuff. Thanks for that. We talked about Jesse, November 5, Juliet Hotel Hotel. Um, he's the guy who made the stickers. The IBEW, when you know stuff, you could do stuff. Now, these, like I said, they've been distributed. Guys in the UK have them. Get out there and put them places. Don't, you know, don't stick them off in the corner where nobody's here. Put them like on Fifth Avenue and 64th can, Street. Can you see Tony Fishpool's Secret Army put one of those sectors on number 10 Downing Street? Some, yeah, but it's got to be subtle. I mean, if you put it on number 10 Downing Street, they're just going to rip it down. But if you find a place near number 10 Downing Street where there's a lot of graffiti already, Rome would be an excellent city for this because oh, there's a lot yeah. of graffiti there. So uh, anyway. Right, right with the Pope. Right there, you know. I, I, I hope we see some more stickers. Thank you, Jesse. Jesse tells us he's going to be moving to the Shenandoah Valley. Very, very cool. Um, Steve NM has a new antenna article on his blog. I'll put the link up there. Thanks for that, Steve. Uh, Steve is always sympathetic when I talk about the S38. Um, he, he, he too has suffered with it. Randy, Alpha Bravo 9, Golf Oscar, he reacted to my comment about how difficult it is to get rid of old test gear. There's so much of the new stuff, like, the, like uh, you can get a Rigol scope the size of a lunchbox that does fantastic things. And in, you know, kind of a, a fifth of the space taken up by an old tech oscilloscope that does half as much at best. He says that where, where he lives, I think he said in Cincinnati area, he can't even give old scopes away. He can't give them away. And I, this is something I observed at the Vienna Wireless Hamfest. Uh, there was a lot, of, a lot of good test gear there that just wasn't, wasn't moving. Uh, Dino Sierra Victor One India wrote India Radio Golf in, in Greece. He liked the the videos about the seventeen twelve rigs. Steve Hartley G Zero Fox Uniform Whiskey, the chairman of the GQRP Club, uh, says that he is experiencing Murphy's Law of Enclosures. You know what this is? This is yes. when the, the, the thing works perfectly when you got it spread out on a board, right? Everything's great. Then you put it in a metal box and all hell breaks loose. 
the radio gods are talking to you here, Steve. There's no reason you have to scrunch those things into a box. Hey, hey, by the way, do you know, this is just to give shock you a little bit. You know, Steve sent me an email the other day and was mentioning that he had to run off to a meeting. They're starting the planning of the virtual convention. <laughs> you know, so that's September. Oh, my God. <laughs> They're going virtual again. Yeah, yeah, I think they are. Oh, man. All right. Well, well it's because not everybody can attend. And it's yeah. they're going to have a real convention, but I think it's going to be virtual, too. Excellent. Good. Well, we're glad to hear that it's coming up. Um, Ralph, Alpha Bravo 1, Oscar Papa. We I don't know if we said crank it in, Ralph. Did we? Yeah, we did. We did. Okay. But but he sent in a comment. It was good to hear from him. He commented that he that he liked the, the videos on the 1712 rig. And then we got a, a good comment from Roberto, X-Ray Echo 1 Golf, X-Ray Golf, who is our man, our correspondent in Guadalajara, Mexico. And he was responding to something where I had talked about the difference between the ham radio spirit of kind of helping newcomers, helping people along, versus the kind of haze the noob uh, kind of spirit that exists sometimes in the computer world. And he he agrees that that he finds that there are what he called petulant, irritable people on the computer scene. We have to watch out for that. We have to make sure that it doesn't spill over into into ham radio because I think that the ham radio, the whole Elmer help the novice, help the new guy along, share parts, share ideas, share tribal knowledge, things that you've been doing for so many years, Pete. That's the kind of spirit we need to continue to encourage and we need to kind of prevent this drift into the kind of hazing that takes place among some of the people who are more uh, kind of computer-focused, I'd say. Um, anyway, Pete, we've been going on for one hour and 33 minutes. This is like uh, almost one of our longest shows. Well, one more thing I'd like to say, that I mentioned some of the gear. I have some I have some old tech gear here. So I have a Tech 465 scope that, that, that Jim, AL7R, W8NSA, gave me many years ago. It's not working and but I think maybe there's somebody out there who can use it. Also, Pete sent me a couple of SBE transceivers, and they are in beautiful shape. They're they're a bit of ham radio history. They're 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 bidirectional rigs, right? And I I will only let them go to a good home to somebody who can really appreciate them, use them. Not going to chop them up. Not going to resell them on eBay or something like that. But if you've got a if you're a, if you could make a case that you're a good home some of these beautiful transceivers that Pete sent, let me know and we will consider you as a possible candidate. I also have a, a Windsor signal generator with a beautiful dial on it from Windsor, England. Beautiful. Anyway, if you're interested in any of this stuff, especially if you could arrange shipment or do a pickup in Northern Virginia, we're close to I-95, let me know and we will, we will consider your candidacy. Pete, Thank you very much for joining us so early in the morning and interrupting. I know you got a busy schedule. Thanks for pulling away. Thanks very much. Good luck with all the rigs. And so, yes. listen, somebody send Pete the kit on Jack Purdom's new rig. Somebody got to do it. It's got to be out there. And I'm saying, Pete needs one. Send it to him. When, as soon as it comes out at FDIM, box it up and send it to Newberry Park. I, I would build it from scratch. I, he, just don't know I, I know, but he needs the kit. Send him the kit, too. Get the experience, okay? There you go. Pete, thanks very much. Thanks, everybody. Seven three, seven West Coast. Ciao from Northern Virginia. 7-3.
That's awesome. The Solder Smoke Podcast is produced once or twice a month using roadkill computers in an electronics workshop somewhere in the wilds of Northern Virginia. The podcast is available via iTunes and directly from our website, soldersmoke.com. Our blog, the Solder Smoke Daily News, is at soldersmoke.blogspot.com. Send email to soldersmoke, that's one word, at yahoo.com. Solder Smoke is listener-supported, and there are many ways you can help keep the podcast going. Please spread the word. Let your friends know about Solder Smoke, the podcast, and our blog. Put links to the podcast and the blog on your websites. Buy a copy of the critically acclaimed book, Solder Smoke, Global Adventures in Wireless Electronics, available from lulu.com. Begin all your visits to Amazon via the Amazon link on our blog page. In this way, Solder Smoke gets a commission from anything you buy on Amazon. Buy some of our attractive Solder Smoke t-shirts, coffee mugs, and bumper stickers at the Solder Smoke store at cafepress.com. If you have a small business, consider advertising on the podcast or on the blog. Our rates are reasonable and our staff is friendly. If none of this appeals to you but you still want to help, well, we have a donation button in the upper left-hand corner of the blog page. However you choose to help, we thank you for your support. Ciao, bravi ragazzi!